So shepherd's field is kind of a broad term. What can that mean? Um, what it means basically is, um, or at least what we're, we're going to make it mean, is um, uh, shepherd's fields means shepherds lead, right? Shepherds have to lead. That's one of the jobs they have to do is, is lead. And so as we're looking at this, we're, I'm trying to think of some ways that, what are some things that I can do as a pastor to try to lead us and lead, lead us as a church to be healthy, etc. So over the next few weeks, we'll look at things like that. Um, today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, look underneath and grab one of these blue and white ones that are on the floor there. Just keep it. It's totally yours. Um, if you have one at home, you can take that and give it away to somebody. But we, want you, we have plenty of those. And we want to give those away as much as we can. We get them for basically free. So take them uh, and give them away or use it right now. Exodus chapter 17. Um, <clears throat> it's the second book of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with where that might be. Um, page 71 right here for me. I don't know if that helps you or not. Um, but we are in Exodus chapter 17. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then um, do a little introduction on on what we're going to be looking at, and then we'll, we'll jump in Exodus 17. We're actually going to start at verse 8. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your time uh, that you've given us to be able to come here and, and worship together. Thank you for the time that we have uh, as family that we can go from here and, and spend time with each other throughout the week. Uh, thank you for your word that you've given us that we can study it and... Um, be changed by it. I thank you that it, you've promised that it does amazing things for us, that it challenges us, it cuts us, it shows us where we need to give our lives to you. I pray that it would do that work for us this morning. I pray that as it reveals to us uh, things about <clears throat> what a healthy community looks like, that we would want to take up those things in this church, in this, in this family. God, I, I submit that I have no way no possibility of being able to preach without your power, without your spirit, and that I don't want to do it on my own power. So would you come now and, and move me out of the way, and would you preach through me? Would these words be yours? Would they minister to my own heart and to all of us? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to do a couple things uh, before we jump in. The first is just try to let you know where we are in the Bible. You know, we're, we're diving into a book we haven't been studying in the middle of it, in the middle of the chapter. So first thing I want to do is kind of take where we are and connect it back up to the meta narrative or the big, pic, big picture story. And the second thing I want to do is talk about why we're talking about this and what's, what we're going to look at and then we'll, look, we'll go on. So um, the meta narrative, the entire Bible is one big story. The entire Bible is telling you one big story which is that God has created, there is a God that he's created us to be in relationship with him, that we broke that because of our willing decision to sin against him. And then he sent his own son to come and save us and to, to die for us on the cross so that he's reconciling us or bringing us back into relationship with him like we had in the very beginning. That's the, that's the entire big picture story. Um, and all of the Bible is telling us that one big story. So uh, when you zoom in on pictures of the Bi- on stories of the Bible, um, I think it's always helpful to see how that connects to the big picture story. So the big picture story uh, is that. So where are we in the Bible? Well, I said God has always been, and then he created man. You had Adam and Eve. And as you truck along in the, in the book of Genesis after that, Adam and Eve had all kinds of kids. And then one day, in Genesis chapter 12, he just looks down at this man, Abram, and he goes, Abram, 
I want you to be the father of my people. Why Abram? Well, we don't know. They just, that's who he picked. And so as, as Abram said, okay, uh, I'll fast forward through the story a little bit. You know, grandson, 12 kids, lots of people. Lots of people now are considered the people of God because Abraham's the father and he's got kid, kid, and 12 grandkids. Uh, one of those named Joseph, uh, he wasn't liked by his brothers. He was sent away to Egypt. Uh, they thought they killed him. Uh, but he's over here in Egypt and they're over there in the, in, in, in the land of, of, of the promised land. Well, a famine happens and they all leave because over here, Joseph, a pretty resourceful guy, has worked himself up uh, in Egypt to be second in command of, all, of everything and besides Pharaoh. And so they all come over here. They're finally reconciled, et cetera, et cetera. Joseph takes them in. He's good friends with Pharaoh, the, the, the number one man. Um, and Pharaoh says, we're going to take care of you. We're going to take care of your family. There's a famine. You stay here. Well, that Pharaoh dies and a new Pharaoh comes in. And the, Joseph and the new Pharaoh aren't boys. They're not, they're not friends like, like the previous one. So the new Pharaoh says, okay, there's a lot of people here that are related to Joseph. And they kept having kids. There's, there's a whole bunch of them now. Uh, and he says, so instead of them staying here and being in equal status with us and taking care of them, we're just going to take all the people that, that are Israelites that belong to, you know, the father of Abraham. We're just going to enslave them all. And now they're slaves here in Egypt because they don't look the same. They, 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 can, they can obviously see, oh, you're an Israelite. You're not, you're not, you're not an Egyptian. We're going to make you a slave here. So you keep going through the book of Exodus. And that's where we are. All of a sudden, God pulls out Moses one day and brings him up to the mountain. Take off your shoes hey, here's the deal, Moses. My people, they're slaves right now. I don't want them to be slaves anymore. So what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to get them out and you're going to bring them away from Egypt back over here to the promised land. So that's what, where we are in the book of Exodus. You, you may be familiar with it. You know, Moses goes to them, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let them go. And then they go through that. They go through the plagues. Um, so as they're going over, as they're, the plagues happen, they finally leave. Um, we looked once already at uh, Exodus 13 during our Christmas series. So that's after they finally left the, the, the splitting of the Red Sea. They go through it and, and Pharaoh's people come after the waters come down. They're all flooded. And now after that, they're, they're walking through. They're on their trek back to the promised land, but they're not there yet. So that's where we're kind of picking up in the story is the people of Israel have left Egypt and they're walking back to the promised land. And as they're walking back to the promised land, God gives them bread from heaven or, or grits, manna, whatever you want to say. Um, they, God gives them water. The, the people of Israel, not great travelers. Just, you know, they're kind of like my children whenever we go places. Are we there yet? How come I'm hungry? I need to go. Wah, wah, wah. Nothing goes my way. Um, so they're, they're, they're kind of not very good travelers at all. It's like traveling with three-year-olds. Um, so we've reached... Uh, the point in the trek here where they're away from Pharaoh, they're away from Egypt, they don't have that threat anymore, but they're not yet to the promised land. Um, and so the similarities are, are striking. You've got Moses intentionally, Moses writes, by the way, the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. Moses, as he writes the Pentateuch, um, writes in such a way where he wants all of these people. Now, how does he do this? Because it hasn't happened yet, because He's carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how he does it. But as he's writing, he wants not just himself, but all the people to kind of prefigure to have something about them that's going to be a shadow of the coming Messiah. So here's how Moses prefigures. Moses is a prophet of God who takes God's people out of slavery and brings them to the promised land. And that 
that story, as we see in the book of Exodus, it's a microcosm of the bigger story, the, the great story, the big story, the meta narrative, which is Jesus pulls his people out of slavery to sin and delivers them to the promised land, heaven, and one day the new heavens and the earth. That's the big story of the Bible. So Moses is just a small story or a microcosm of the great story, the great meta narrative. And that's where we are as we're looking here at Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. That's what's going on. Um, now, as we're looking at Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, and we're actually going to go through the end of 18, all the way through 27, we're going to see some things regarding how Moses and this community, as they're leaving the promised land, uh, I'm sorry, leaving slavery and going to the promised land, on this particular trek, they're, they're a community of people. They're walking through, and they're dealing with stuff. And what we're going to see is, as we see this community of people um, w- making this trek, there's three essential and three indispensable ingredients that are needed to be a healthy community of faith. They are a community of faith. They believe in Yahweh. They believe in the Lord. They believe in God. Uh, and as they're making this, in these particular verses, as they're making this, this trek, we're only going to see a snippet of it. Uh, we're going to see three very, very important ingredients to their, to their health of a community. So here's what I mean when I say indispensable ingredients. And I'm not a baker, so I'm going to get ingredients wrong and just act like I know what I'm talking about. Um, so if I was going to bake a cake, uh, there's essential ingredients necessary to maintain the essence of cakeness. That it, without those things, it's not a cake. And then there's extra things. You know, there's the sprinkles or the funfetti. And whether those things can be in there or not, but those things don't make it a cake. It's already a cake, but there's the flour and the, the eggs, uh, whatever, like those, whatever the else goes in there that makes it, a, without those things, it's just a blob of stuff in a bowl, right? Or bake it and then now it's a cake. Without those things, it's not a cake. So I'm talking about the essential ingredients of cakeness, of eggs and flour and whatever else would make it. Uh, so when I'm talking about the essential, indispensable ingredients of a health community, I'm not talking about, oh, it sure would be nice if our community had these, you know, sprinkles and funfetti, and it'd be awesome. We'd be even more awesome. I'm saying, without these three things, we aren't a community. We aren't a healthy community at all. So I'm going to, we're going to look at three things that make a healthy community of faith. And without those things, we're just, we're just not a community. We're not a community of faith at all. So that's what we're going to see here in 17, 8 through 1827. Three indispensable, you can go ahead and put the long, ridiculous title up, sorry. Three in, indispensable ingredients of a healthy community. So these things are absolutely necessary. Let's look. Uh, they're, they're in little sections, and the first one comes in the rest of 17, verse 8 through 16. So let's, let me read it, and then we'll, we'll kind of go through it verse by verse, and, and you'll see everything in there. So verse 8. Then... Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Let, let's stop there because I have, I have a pretty good idea, and as, as did I, as I'm reading. What? Who's Amalek? Who, Rephidim? I don't know who that is. So um, Amalek, if you are an amazing reader, you remember back in Genesis 36, there was this offhand name Amalek um, in verses 12 and 16. He's a descendant of Esau. A descendant of Esau uh, he will be Amalek. And that's all we got. That's, and then all of a sudden, as you're reading, Moses is like, well, I already said his name once back in Genesis 36. Surely they're going to remember him. So he doesn't say, remember Esau's descendant. He just says, then Amalek, just like we absolutely remember Genesis 36, 12, and 16. So descendant of Esau's are, are, are kind of, they're enemies of the people of Israel. 
If you remember, there's always going to be kind of angst between Jacob and Esau. And so a descendant of Esau, not Jacob, who's Israel, uh, there's going to be some angst and there's going to be some fighting. So a, de- a, de- a descendant of Esau, Amalek, um, is coming and fighting against Israel because they already have some problems. So they're making their trek. They're trying to get back to the promised land. We don't know why that, I'm going to call them the Amalekites. We don't know why the Amalekites uh, decided to attack them. It could be just, oh, we don't like them. We're going after them. We know where they are. Let's get on. Let's go get them. Or it could be the Israelites got some stuff and we want to go get it. Or, hey, we're enemies. We think they're weak because they just left Egypt and they're not strong yet. Let's go get them. Who knows? But Nevertheless, um, Amalek heard that they're there. We're going to go get them. And so they're going to go fight. So Moses says, all right, the Amalekites are going to fight us. Here's the plan. <laughs> Here's the plan. He says, he says to Joshua, Joshua, choose for us some men and you go out and you fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I'm going to stand up on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. All right, so basically this is what he says. All right, Moses, uh, Joshua, here's the plan. You're gonna go fight. You're gonna go risk your life. I'm gonna go stand up on the hill and I'm gonna hold up a stick, okay? And Joshua's like, okay, that sounds good. Um, I, don't know, I don't know why Joshua agrees to this, but he thinks it's a great idea. I do know why, but let's keep reading. So Joshua did exactly as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses um, and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, so while they're fighting, he's still on the hill and he's just standing there. If I hold up my hands while they're fighting, Israel prevails. And when I lower my hands, Amalek and the Amalekites start pre- prevailing. So obviously he wants Israel to win. So at, the longer he holds up his hands, Israel wins. But if he puts them down, then it's the opposite. And it says, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side and one on the other. And his hands were steady the entire time until the going down of the sun. And because of that, while his hands are up and as long as his hands are up, they'll win the fight. Uh, and so it says, <clears throat> Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So Joshua is down on the battlefield. Joshua, Yahweh saves. They're down, he's down on the battlefield fighting and Moses is up on the hill holding his hands up. And as long as Moses' hands are up, they win. And then verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So here we see the Lord is not pleased at all with the Amalekites are trying to, trying to crush them. So back to verse 8. Amalek comes and he fights with Israel. Moses says to Joshua, by the way, it's the very first time Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, he obviously is a huge leader later on. First mention, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Tells him to go choose for men and fight. And he says, I'm going to go stand up on top of the hill. So really what you have is the prophet, of Moses, the prophet Moses up on the hill, uh, God's power through him fighting with spiritual weapons, holding up his arms. And as long as he does, he's up there uh, and they will win. And then you have, in a human way, you have Joshua, the warrior, down on the ground wielding the sword. So you have Yahweh saves Joshua down there. And both of those things are going to, going to be necessary. Now, um, we have to remember that there's no way Joshua is going to win. There's no way unless Moses is there. If Moses isn't there, Joshua's got no prayer to win. And so it's absolutely essential that the power of God in Moses is there in order for them to win. 
So here's my first thing. Here's my first thing. We know that the power of God is absolutely necessary for them to win. So something that's indispensable in the community of faith is this. You can go ahead and put up number one. They must completely rely on God's power. Fudd, that's pretty self-evident. Why would you say that? Um, let's talk about it. Let's, let's first of all talk about why I think that's what's going on in the text. And then we'll talk about, even though it's why it's self-evident, <laughs> why I would say it. So um, as we know, Moses is for us prefiguring uh, Jesus, but so is Joshua. Uh, Tony Morita, you might not know who this guy is. He's a, he's a pastor. He's a professor at Southeastern. He says this, throughout Exodus, God is going to show little flashes of things to come. There would be a prophet like Moses and a warrior like Joshua who will fight for you all together in one person, Jesus Christ. So these, these people that are being shown to us in the Bible are prefigures of the coming Messiah. And so the reason why I say that they're completely relying on God's power and not their own. Let, let me give you a, a couple reasons. Number one, uh, or the first reason, in verse nine, it says that whenever uh, Moses goes up to the hill, he says he's gonna take the staff of God with him. This staff of God is a demonstration, taking the staff of God is a demonstration of Moses that he's absolutely dependent upon God for the victory. He doesn't take you know, his walking stick, he doesn't take anything else. He takes the staff of God. And he knows that when I hold the staff of God up, whenever I do that, then we're going to win. But if I don't, then we're going to lose. So that's first kind of realization that he's dependent on God's power. The second one is in verse 11, where it says, Moses held up his hand. Moses held up his hand. Why? Why is it that of all the things that God could choose that he needs to do in order to win, why is it that he chooses hold up your hands the whole time during the battle? Why doesn't he choose talk? Why doesn't he choose, you know, dance? As long as you're dancing or something. Like, why is it that he chooses hold up your hands? And as long as your hands are up, then you win. It's interesting. He could have chosen anything. He's God, right? He doesn't, no one's telling him the rules. He makes the rules. Why does he choose holding up hands? Well, I could go all over the Bible, I think, to give the answer. I'm gonna zoom in on one. Uh, in Psalm 63, and I think that it's just, it helps us know that any verse we go to would give us the same answer. Psalm 63, verse three and four, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you. This is a Psalm of David writing about just how much he enjoys worshiping Jesus, how much he needs Jesus. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And so the lifting up of hands in Psalm 63 and all over the Bible is an, it's an, it's the ultimate sign of man saying to God that I am absolutely dependent upon you. I am absolutely relying on you and you alone. P.S., by the way, that's why we raise our hands when we sing corporate worship together. It's, it's because we're posturing ourselves to the Lord to say, I'm relying only upon you and I'm depending only upon you for life. That's just a PS. So back here, the reason why we can say that this is the first essential ingredient of a healthy community is that you completely rely on God's power because in verse 11, they're holding up their hands, which is a sign that says, I'm, I only can depend on you, God. And that, that's a sign that shows that I'm not relying on anybody else. Um, another one is, well, let, let's, let's keep going through the text. I'll get to 14, verse 14, but... Interesting enough, verse 12, it said, Moses' hands grew weary. 
Moses' hands grew weary. And as his hands grew weary, and as you and I will grow weary in our walk, you've got two guys that come up and help, Aaron and Hur. Aaron and Hur, they come up and hold his hands up. Hur, by the way, terrible name, isn't it? Hur. The man's name is Hur. <laughs> you know, he's always like, it's U-R. It's not E-R. Um, they, they didn't speak English, but I think it's funny. So you have these two guys coming up uh, and holding up their hands. Now, if, if, we, if we wanted to try to take it at a real man-centered thought process on how can we say that, we can say something like, Moses got weary and you're going to get weary. And so since Moses got weary, he relied upon his fellow man to come hold his hands up. And so you're one of two people. You're the weary Moses or you're the helper, uh, her or Aaron, and you need to make sure that you're one of those people. So uh, while that's not necessarily a bad application to make, it's true. You're going to get weary. And as you get weary, you should be like Moses and ask for help. And you should also be the kind of person like her or Aaron that comes and helps people, right? Um, but I think that's kind of the first level man-centered kind of way to think about it. Not that this necessarily like, you're man-centered, not God-centered. Um, but I, I, would, I would ask this, as we're looking at Moses growing weary and the ultimate victory still coming, who's the ultimate help here? Who's still the ultimate help? Is it Aaron and her? Is it, if it wasn't for Aaron and her holding up Moses' hands, they wouldn't have won. Or is it God? I, I would submit that I still think it's God. L- let me show you in verse 14. After the wind's over, after the victory, uh, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and I will recite in the ears. They, they will fa- fight the Amalekites later on, but eventually later on, look what God's power, look what God has the power to do. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Any blotting out of people, like they're just done as a people, that can only be done by God. Like blot, God's the only one that can literally just blot out people out of existence. So ultimately, because of the staff of God, the hands held up to God, and this eventual blotting out of people of memory of Amalek, I would say that this is, this is the people of God ultimately relying on God's power. And so now we're back to the essential ingredient. We're not a healthy community if we don't rely on God's power. If we just try to operate on our own strength and do everything on our own power. We're not a healthy community. So here's the application section then. Um, We, as a community of Jesus' followers, as a a community that loves Christ, we must be completely reliant upon God's power and not our own. And there's a huge reason why. Um, Lots of reasons we could say, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, I think is one of the biggest reasons. It says this, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If our battle was just flesh and blood, we would have enough people that can just conjure up enough strength to fight against flesh and blood. But we're not fighting just against flesh and blood. Instead, we're fighting against things we can't even see. We're fighting against powers of evil that are coming against us. And there's no way that those things can be defeated just by our own strength. We are absolutely dependent upon God to do that. We can't even see them or know that they're there. So unless there's God's power to defeat them, it's never going to happen for us. So we have to be the kind of people that are completely reliant upon or totally dependent upon God's power in order to do the ministry that God wants us to do. Now, here's where it gets, I think, even 
more awesome. Consider how the people got the power. How did the people get the power here? As long as Moses' hands were up, they won. So there was a mediator involved. Moses, mediating between God's power and them. And as long as Moses was interceding on the hill for them, it resulted in their power. Now that is a prefiguring of Christ. Moses, as he is standing on the hill with his hands up, interceding for the people, is is pointing us to the same big picture of Jesus, who is the ultimate interceder, who Jesus stood for us on the hill, the, Mount, the, uh, the hill of Golgotha, and didn't have to have someone literally hold his hands up, but instead willingly went and held his hands up on the cross. And it resulted in us also not just receiving forgiveness of our sins, but getting ultimate power by the Spirit. For, further, Moses, because he had to have his hands up, Jesus is greater because he didn't. And he went to the cross. And because he went to the cross and died for our sin, we can receive forgiveness. And here's the best thing. Moses interceded for his people on the hill. The even more cooler thing is that Jesus is still on this very moment right now, on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. That's what Romans 8.34 says. So, Moses is prefiguring or pointing us to our great intercessor, Christ. Because he's still interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, as it says at Romans 8, 34, there's still a continual power coming to, to us by the power of the Spirit. And because we have the Spirit in our lives, because of our intercessor, now we can have continual power for ministry as a healthy community. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So why would we, as a as a community of faith, want to rely on anything else other than God's power. So an essential, indispensable ingredient for a healthy community of faith is that they are relying totally on God's power. So here's a question for you. Where are you not relying on God's power? In this community that you're in, whatever biblical community is, whether it's here, community group, together, whatever it is, where are the places? And you can discern pretty easily, I think. In these particular places, as we are doing life together as a community of faith, we're not relying on, our, on God's power. We're relying on ourselves. You could, you could break it down to your marriages if you're married. And in your marriage, as you lead your wife or wives, as you um, serve your husband and, and, and do ministry with your husband, where are you relying on God's power? And where are you relying on your own power? The essential thing I mean, one of the most essential things is that you would be relying on God's power, not your own. So that's the first section. Now we're going to go into chapter 18, verse 1. We're going to see in chapter 18, verse 1 through 12, uh, the second indispensable ingredient. Jethro, so I know you're thinking, whoa, like where's the banjos? Um, Jethro... (coughs) is Moses' father-in-law. <clears throat> and back then, it was a pretty cool name. It still is. So, you know, no banjos or hee-haw or whatever. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses. Now, uh, Moses is married to Jethro's daughter. And before we get into it too much, I, I'm going to try to make us, I, I think it's the case. I don't think that Jethro is a follower, believer in Yahweh yet. We're in Old Testament, so it's not like we're saying, you know, he hasn't asked Jesus in his heart yet. 
he hasn't, he, that's not what we're saying, or trusted Christ for his, his sin uh, being paid for by Jesus. We're saying believers in Jesus, or believers in Yahweh. I don't think that Jethro is yet. So in this first section, we're just going to kind of see the family reunion, and then we'll get to verses 8 through 12, where it gets to the real meat of everything. But let's look at the family reunion. Um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and Israel, how he had brought them out of Israel. He knew that they were slaves and now they're not anymore. He's like, ah, my son-in-law is not a slave in Egypt anymore. That's awesome. I want to go see him. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with the two sons, the name of which was Gershom, for he said he had been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other name is Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father has helped. Lots of good baby names again. I say this as much. Gershom, Her, Eliezer, um, there's, if you want to go with Jethro, I think it's pretty cool too. Jethro's, uh, Moses' father-in-law came with his sons and wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So he brings, uh, he brings everybody, family reunion, and they're all getting together. Verse 6, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, of coming to you with your wife and her two sons with you. Moses was so pumped, so excited. He, he knows that his wife and his kids are coming and Jethro. And what does he do? What? Who's the first person he runs to? Kisses his wife on the mouth. Notice this. Notice this first. Notice the respect that he has. Um, Moses, it says this. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. So, um, husbands, unless every time you see your father-in-law, you're not giving him a kiss and bowing down, you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it wrong. I mean, take Moses' example here. <laughs> you're not going to do that. I'm not going to do it here. But you can see here the respect that he has. And it says, and when they asked each other their welfare, they went to the tent. So um, family reunion happens. Moses is reunited with his family. And verse 8 through 12 is where we're going to get to kind of the meat of everything, of, of what is the second ingredient. So verse 8 and 9 is one section. Verse 10 through 12 is the second section. So here's what's going to happen. Um, Moses as I've already said, I don't believe at this particular moment that Jethro is a believer, a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. Um, Moses is going to tell him his experience, and then there's going to be something that happens. But this something, this belief, this understanding will never, ever, 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 ever happen unless someone tells you. You, you can't believe or understand something unless someone tells you about it. You just will be blank slate, no knowledge. So here we go. Verse 8 and 9 is that telling, which results in verse 10 through 12. Then Moses, here it is, told. Pretty straightforward and pretty easy to understand. Moses decided to talk to Jethro and tells him. Now, you can even use this particular language of 8 and 9 that's happening with Moses saying how I've delivered out of, out of, out of slave, we were delivered out of slavery and use it for your own story. Look, Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians uh, for Israel's sake, where they all drowned, and the hardship that had come upon them in, in their way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. This is Jethro rejoicing, not necessarily in Yahweh, like, oh, I believe in God and he's awesome. This is Jethro rejoicing that his family's alive. Okay, so he told him. So if you're going to use this same language, you could say then, fill in your blank, right? fill in your name, say your name. Ready, go. All right, that was good. That was awesome. Y'all are, are with me. So then so-and-so went to neighbor, friend, co-worker, 
person that doesn't know Jesus and told them all that God had done to, for them, it's Israel being delivered out of slavery. So you can fill in how you were delivered out of slavery to sin. So you went and told so-and-so how the Lord, everything he had done, how he had delivered you out of sin because of Jesus' work on the cross and everything that, that the Lord had done for you and how the Lord had delivered you. That's exactly what it says in the end of verse eight. And then you can let them hear this. Now, Jethro rejoices, but we're gonna see after that Jethro's response. But know no, no this. Let me go ahead and put up verse two. You, you know where I'm going. All right, second, second ingredient. Here's the second ingredient, is that we tell others the gospel. We tell other the, others the good news of what Christ has done. We tell them what the Lord has done for us and how, in the same way, he can do that for them. But verse eight, we have, so the, the two parts of gospel witnessing are right there. The first part of gospel witnessing is telling in eight and nine, the second part of gospel witnessing, which is the Lord's work and not yours. This second part is, is God's going to do it. You, you can't make it. But the second part will not happen unless the first part happens. That's Romans 10. Romans 10 is pretty straightforward with us. I think it's 13 through 17 are the verses where it says, that, how are they going to believe if they don't ever hear about it? Um, so gospel witnessing, we have telling. And then verse 10, watch, this is why I think Jethro is actually a believer, becomes a believer in God right here. Um, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. I'm glad you're alive. This is where I think, if we're gonna say a conversion, and I'm not saying like he got real sad at VBS Thursday because they scared him and he's like, I, gotta, I wanna trust Jesus. I, I think it's different. And verse 11 though, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Little g, now I know. I used to think that this little g gods were all equal with him. But now I know that that's not the case, that all those are actually false gods, not even real. And that there's only one God and that's who I believe. Now I know that's who I believe now, Yahweh, because all capital letters, that's Yahweh. So this is where I think there's a belief happening um, on Jethro's behalf in the God of Israel. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because after, because in his, this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And this is even gonna strengthen my argument in verse 12. And Jethro and Moses' father-in-law brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now, Tony Morita, the same guy I was talking about before, a professor at Southeastern says, whenever he offers this burnt offering and sacrifice, he says, this offering is understood in the Old Testament as to be, to atone for past sins, and to appeal for forgiveness and acceptance to God. So why would they do that? Why would he do that if this is not some kind of new revelation of or recognition of this is the true God? I'm going to believe in him now and even offer burnt sacrifices. So a healthy community tells the gospel and then leaves the results up to God. But a healthy community tells other people the gospel. A unhealthy community does not ever tell people the gospel. An unhealthy community does not ever. So this is what I want you to, 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 to think this way. Therefore, application, since a healthy community tells others the gospel, I want you then to resolve in your mind and your heart, resolve yourself to think, my neighbor will not be converted unless I tell them the gospel. I don't want you to think my neighbor will not be converted unless someone tells him the gospel. 
I want you to think it this way. My neighbor will not be converted unless I tell him the gospel. I'm not dependent on the person beside me or in front of me, in my seat right now, or the house beside me, or across the hallway. I am, I'm only thinking right now, healthy communities tell people the gospel. I want to be a person in a healthy community. Therefore, I want to tell people the gospel. My neighbor, my family, my community groups, Winthrop Focus, whoever they are, they will not believe in Jesus unless I tell them. Unless I be like Moses and tell them, they'll never have the Jethro moment of blessing the Lord, believing in the Lord, and offering worship as a burnt sacrifice. We won't, we won't see worshipers of Jesus be created. So I want you to resolve this. I'll say it this way. Stop outsourcing the proclamation of the gospel to the other people in the church to tell people about Jesus and start doing it yourself. Step up, all of us, all of us, step up and start telling people the gospel and not depending on other people to do it for us. They won't get saved unless someone tells them. This is the predominant way that God's, I know, what about that guy that that got saved on the island with dreams? Okay, okay. But that's like 2% of people that might get saved that way. The predominant way that the Lord has designed that people come to know Christ is Romans 10, 13 through 17. How will they ever believe if they don't hear? And that's, they don't hear unless we talk. So healthy communities tell people the gospel, each other and unbelievers. So let's be the kind of believers in this community, this healthy community. Let's be the kind that don't outsource that to other people and just say, well, my community group leader does that for me. My accountability partner does that for me. My husband or wife does that for me. My pastor does that for me. But instead, I'm going to resolve in my heart that I'm going to do it. But let me just say a couple things about how we should do it. How should we do it? First is we need to always be ready. First Peter 3.15, always be ready. So anytime it ever comes, don't say, gospel time, Give me an hour and then like run off and do your study and say, okay, I'm ready. Like if you have to do that, Lord bless you and that, do it. But always be ready. Always be ready to do it. Second thing, not just be ready, but do it lovingly. We, we want to see people converted lovingly and not like, I'm a Christian, you're not. Here it is. Like, but instead, like lovingly communicate to them how to be saved. Ephesians, I think it's uh, four, maybe it's 12. 16, one of those. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. We want to be the kind of people that speak the truth of the gospel, but do it lovingly. We don't want to, here's another way that we want to speak the gospel is we want to, we don't want to do it sparingly. In Matthew chapter 13, you have the, the, the parable of the sower, you know, where the guy has, he's got grass seed and he's throwing out grass seed and some of it gets, you know, some of it goes deep, some of it doesn't, some of it. I don't want you to think that you've got this little tiny bag of, of seed, gospel seed and that you can only throw it on the best soil. You've got like unlimited bags of gospel seed. You're never going to run out. You just, you just take that junk and you just throw it everywhere. And whenever that's gone, you, you can go to a whole nother. God's never going to let you run out of bags. And you just keep throwing gospel seed everywhere. So the way that we tell others the gospel is, it's never sparingly. It's just generously sowing, 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 sowing as much as we can, throwing it out all over the place because the more you tell, that's how people get saved. And lastly, 
Uh, the way we do it is Matthew 24, 14, this gospel will be preached or proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come. We, we want to take the gospel to the nations, remembering that we're not just called just to tell the gospel here. We're, we're called to tell this gospel everywhere. And so we want to do, always be ready. We want to be loving whenever we do it. We want to be as generous as we possibly can and we want to do it to the nations. That's what a healthy community does. A healthy community tells the gospel in those ways. So, same question as we end, like we ended last time. Are you, really, are you dependent on God's power or your own? Just self-examine here. Are you proclaiming the gospel? I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you, oh, shucks, fud, I'm not. Like, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm after. I want you to just think here, like, am I? Am I a, a healthy proclamator in loving, kind ways of the gospel? That's what an essential ingredient here, or an indispensable ingredient of a healthy community is, is people that proclaim the gospel. They don't outsource it to the think, people they think are better. Just because you know someone that has the gift of evangelism doesn't mean that they're the only one that's supposed to do evangelism. Everybody's supposed to do it, whether, whether you're gifted at it or not. I, I don't feel like I'm gifted at it. And so I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's so hard. I have no idea sometimes. Like, I'm talking to somebody. I'm like, how am I supposed to talk about Jesus? Like, it's just, how you doing? Good. So you like anything? Nope. Like, man, I, he, this guy doesn't like anything. If he just likes something, hockey, like something. I could talk about something. I'm good. Like, and then there's this, my friend, I had a friend in seminary, Noah. Like, it didn't matter who it was. He would be talking to him within three minutes of the gospel. He was the most outgoing, amazing, like, like, how are you doing that? I just took him pizza, and then I talked about Jesus. So I'm like, pizza? Where'd you get pizza from? <laughs> like, he's just, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm with you frustrated at them, right? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But the truth is, we have to be gospel proclamators. Is that a word? We have to be the kind of people, if we're going to be healthy, that we tell others the gospel. So are you doing it? Are you finding yourself doing it? Are you finding yourself quiet? Are you finding yourself just hopefully outsourcing it? Third one. Starts at verse 13. That'll, it'll go the rest. So the first uh, indispensable ingredient is that we rely on God's power. The second indispensable ingredient is that we tell others the gospel. The third one is this. Um, and, and you may feel like, like I'm kind of trying to step on your toes and like really trying to like bang your toes away. I'm not. Like I'm, that's not the goal at all. But... The Bible is going to do that probably in this one. Um, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge. We need to stop here and just remember uh, what we've just seen. Jethro, likely a brand new convert, though he's older, is going to see what Moses is doing and give advice. Give advice to Moses. If you're remotely familiar with this text, you know Jethro is going to give him some advice. Moses... I mean, he knows he's God's man. Like, he knows Jethro, burning bush buddy. I, I'm God's man. I took my shoes off and everything. God's already told me I'm the leader. You need to give me advice. God could have already given it to me. Uh, I know I'm a stutter. Got that taken care of with Aaron. Everything's good, bud. All right, Jethro? So he doesn't take that, right? He does not take that kind of, who are you to give me advice kind of thing. Instead, he's humble. He's a humble dude that doesn't, humble man that is not going to be prideful, but he's going to take it. So just remember here what's going on and how he's not going to be prideful. Then the next day, Moses sat to judge the people and stood 
uh, around Moses from morning till dawn. Now, when you hear judge, it's not like, come here, your hair's terrible. Go get it fixed. What? Go get on the treadmill, lose weight, like eat better. Like, it's none of that kind of stuff. It's not like, like we think, he's just judging him. What a jerk. This is him taking care of the everyday matters of Israel. That's, that's what he's doing. And they use the word judge for that. So the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people, it's like, is this Simon Cowell um, or whoever it is now? Uh, J-Lo, whoever's on it now. Keith Urban, that's his name. Um, Harry Connick. So you have the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So here's what Moses is doing. He's doing all the work. When Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing for all the people, he said, what is it that you're doing for your people? Why do you sit alone all the morning, stand around from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God and they have a dispute and they come to me and I decide one person and another and make, they, I make known the statutes. So I'm doing everything. If we imported that into our little thing, that'd be like, Moses is going to preach the sermon. Moses is going to lead the worship. Moses is going to get here early and set up all the chairs. Moses is going to stay late and, and, and uh, take out all the trash. Moses is going to run down there when he's not preaching and, and, and change the diapers for the kids. Um, and then he's also going to, throughout the entire week, he's going to do all the counseling. He's going to go lead every community group. He's going to host everybody at his home and, and prepare all the food for community group. Like he's doing it all. Moses is just doing everything. And so Jethro is looking at him like, dude, what are you doing? What? What? <laughs> Why are you doing everything? Um, and so here it is, advice. Here, here comes the, uh, the warning, if you will. Moses said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the things too heavy for you. That's the warning. You are going to wear yourself out if you keep operating at the same level. Keep going. It says, now obey my voice and I will give you advice, but God be with you. Man, that's amazing considering where we are. And Moses could be super prideful or he could be super humble and listen to his, his older new convert father-in-law. Father-in-law. Obviously he loves me, he kisses him. So um, he says, obey my voice. I'm gonna give you advice. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what the people must do. Moreover, look, um, look for able. So you need to do all that, but here's something else you need to do. You need to look for able men from the people who are fear of God and trustworthy and don't take bribes and place such men over other peoples as chiefs of thousands and then hundreds and then fifties and then tens and let them judge the people along with you or maintain the, the order and flow of the way things should happen in, in Israel. Um, and every great matter they can bring to you, but the small matters they can decide for themselves. And then it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden. So the warnings you're gonna wear yourself out. The solution is delegate so that you don't have to bear the burden by yourself. And here's the result if you do this. He goes, if you do this, there's three results that will happen. Number one, God will direct you. The Lord will guide you and show you what he wants to do. Number two, he says, you will be able to endure you'll actually have some kind of longevity in ministry. So this is my experience thus far as being in ministry 27, 17 years. Um, whenever I was 23 and I started ministry, big group of guys that I knew from, from college that we just graduated and even after that in seminary, there's a big group of guys. And so as you go through ministry, you talk to them on the phone. You're in that city, I'm in the city, we talk all the time. And there, there are certainly men that disqualify themselves through sin. But there's also just, just guys that are going through ministry and they just be like, you know what? This is too hard. This is not any fun. I'm 
quitting and I'm selling insurance or something. Like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. And I have, as I've talked to them and tried to discern and try to figure out what's going on, this is what I believe. Most pastors that don't disqualify themselves but quit ministry, they quit because congregations never ever believe and buy into the fact that they're supposed to share in the ministry with the pastor instead of just depending on him to do it all. And then what happens is he burns out. He doesn't endure. Now, I'm not like, so therefore, I'm, not, I'm fine. I don't plan on quitting. I feel like we're sharing, but let's keep looking at this because I feel like we can do better. Um, so the second result is God will direct you. God will share you. And then the third result is where it says um, you'll be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace or everyone will receive peace or maybe the better way to say it is it's what's best for everyone. In the end, it's what's best for everyone. The result is that's what's best for everyone. Everybody has peace. So those are the results. Um, I ask everybody that, that runs a different ministry this week to, to tell me how many people they have to have per month to run what they do. So Carrie, she runs the kids ministry. Um, Jordan, who does worship and in the back. And SMAP, who does set up and breakdown. And even Matt for community groups. I ask, how many people do you have to have in, in leadership or serving areas in order to do it. We have to have, for the whole month, that means if people are serving once a month or whatever, um, 125 slots to be able to do everything, which is a pretty good bit. You're like, wow, that's a lot, 125. Um, so I did the math and figured it all out. We've got 85 people that do those 125 slots. So that means 40 are doing one thing, 45 are doing two things. Now, the 40 people that are doing one thing don't feel bad. I think that that's actually the way it should go. I think that doing one thing and doing it well is actually how it should be. Two people, the, the 45 they're doing too, I'm not asking you to, to quit. <laughs> like, we, I'm glad you're doing it. Um, we obviously need it. Um, but you might wear yourself out. Now, I should say this too. I'm strictly using this as an example for Sunday mornings. And I don't want you to think that whenever I'm... I'm unpacking this third point that I'm talking, therefore everybody needs to do something on, on, on Sunday morning. Here's my third essential ingredient, indispensable ingredient of a healthy community, that we share the work of ministry. We share the work of ministry. Now, it's a danger for you, I think, as I set, use that example, for you to think the word ministry then means Sunday morning. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just using that as an example for our church that about 50% of the people are doing the, the work, and the other 50%, um, I'm guessing, aren't. Now, if you're new, then that's just, you're new. I mean, you're new. Um, but you shouldn't be. So uh, when I say ministry here, I'm not just going to talk about serving on Sunday mornings. I mean everything. Gospel ministry in the church, proclaiming others the gospel, being on mission with us, being in a community group, knowing the people in this church that you're really there for them and care for them, etc. But let me ask you two questions. Let me, as we're talking about sharing ministry, for those of you that this is your church, or if you're at another church, this is a question for you to think of in light of that church. If you're brand new here, this isn't for you. This, these two questions aren't for you. But I want to ask these two, and this is where Maybe I step on your toes, but I love you. I'm not, I'm not trying to step on your toes. I want you to just hear these two things and consider these things with me. How many people in this church are wearing themselves out in this community of faith 
because they're bearing your weight. How many people are having to bear your weight right now? Second question. How many of you need to then step up and involve yourself in being real gospel ministers here at Remedy? Real gospel ministers here at Remedy. And when I say gospel ministers, you think full-time job? No. I'll, I'll talk about what I mean in just a second. The characteristics of the people in ministry, as it says in verse 21, are able men, fear God, trustworthy. So people that are capable gospel ministers, that means Christians, they should be, whatever your ability, we want to put you in that position, that you fear the Lord, that you trust God, that you're a follower of Jesus, and that you're trustworthy to get the job done. That's basically what we mean. But as I said, I'm not saying this as this isn't just serving on Sundays means or that equals real gospel ministry in the church. This means that real gospel ministry is, it might mean Sundays, but it also means thinking strategically how I and the group that I'm involved in of other Christians can strategically reach other people that don't know Christ. That's what I mean by real gospel ministry is that you, you, you are allowing yourself to be a real member of the body, that you don't allow yourself to get so busy in your schedule that when there are real needs that you have to say, I don't have any time. I don't have any time. Instead, you, you intentionally leave blank spaces in your schedule, real margin, so that whenever those things come, you have buckets of margin. When something arises, you say, yes, I can do that. Because as a gospel minister, I have intentionally left margin in my schedule. I don't so busy myself that I can't do gospel ministry. Instead, I leave margin. So when the things come up and you ask for help as a real gospel minister, I've got these spaces to say, yes, I'm going to do it. Because I'm thinking intentionally about what it means to be a shared ministry. No one's asking me to do anything because you don't have margin. Leave margin and watch how you can actually start sharing in the ministry. That's an essential. I mean, it's absolutely a key ingredient for us that we're doing real gospel ministry and that you have time to do it and that you share in that. It means this. It means this. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that basically just says, every Christian is a minister of reconciliation. He, minister. You're a minister of reconciliation. Ephesians 4, it's either 12 or 16, says something like this, um, that the primary work of the pastor is to equip the church to do the work of ministry, to do the, the church to do the, so because you're a minister of reconciliation and the primary job of me is to get you to do the ministry of reconciliation, then shared, believing in this number three means I'm going to couple those two together and I'm going to take on the challenge, the command, the promise that I'm going to live those two things out. The fact that I am a minister of reconciliation and that my primary job as a minister of reconciliation is to do the work of ministry. Me too, of course, but you too. So you say, yes, I am going to, with everything inside of me, share in the work of ministry. I'm going to share the workload of ministry. I want, I want to illustrate something for you through a story. This, this was my Friday, and, and, and I don't, I'm not saying this to make you think, Wow, Fudd, you're awesome. Look at you. Because I'm not awesome. Like, I'm the opposite. And I'm not saying this so you'll, like, pity me that I had to 
Friday night after I got home from my date, go back out forever. That's not what I'm saying. I dated my wife Friday. It was awesome. So here's my, uh, here's my, uh, here's my story. So about a year ago, we had someone that was coming to church here, moved out of town. They, they left, um, got a job out of town, and they left. But I've been communicating uh, over the last year via email, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the community that they're in, they have, because there isn't I, likely a shared workload, um, and maybe it's not just this church. It could be just be busyness. I don't know. There's a, fall, there's a possibility of falling through the cracks. I'll say this. Let me say this story. This is an example for us not to say, so this is going to happen to you, us. That's not it. It's, the story is, man, let's never let something, let's do everything we can, that we can, that something like this never happens. That's, that's my point of telling you this. So um, life hasn't been easy. And he gets a flight, a one-way flight, back to Rock Hill, um, because this is kind of his home. Doesn't go home, though. Goes to a gun store, buys a gun, goes and buys a hotel room, and uh, goes to the room and is going to take his life. That morning, I received this email from him. Like, it, it, I've received these kinds of emails. Like, it's too hard. I just want to end it all. And I've always kind of called him on it and said, hey, what's going on? Last time I said, if you ever send me one of those again, like I'm, I'm taking everyone from now on absolutely serious. I'm not going to play with you anymore. I'm not going to see if you're being for real, just wanting attention. Um, so he sent me one. And this one he sent me this, this Friday was just a little bit more heightened. It's, Fud, I'm going to go see Jesus today. I'm tired of it. And you've been good to me. Thank you. But that's it. Um, that concerned me. It was, it was a heightened kind of threat. And amazingly, I remember somebody in his family once came. I'm going to go look at our connection card file. So praise God for SMAP who writes down the connection cards and puts them in this big file. I go there and I see the family member and I have a phone number. Call the family member, phone number. Long story short, the family member gets in touch with places that he's supposed to be, gets in touch with our police here in Rock Hill. Praise God for Rock Hill Police Department. They find the hotel that he's in. Um, knock on the door and say maintenance, bust in there and get him, find the gun and get there in time. Praise God. Nothing happens. He's in the hospital. He's getting help. So why do I tell you that story? I'm not saying that, hey, somebody's going to commit suicide. And if you don't, you're going to, if you don't help them, that's going to happen. I say, let's do everything we can to be the kind of community that loves to tell the gospel and wants to share so much in the ministry that we do everything we can that someone here with us now isn't falling through the cracks. No one's falling through the cracks. Now, certainly everybody still has things that they're dealing with and they, they can only be as honest as they want to be. But at the same time, let's be as ever vigilant as we can to operate as a healthy community because we are so given over to sharing the workload no one's burning out. Everyone's going to be able to endure. And we have greater capacity to be able to spot anybody that might fall through the cracks. I'm not saying that that would happen if they did. But let's just be the kind of community that's going to say, everything that we can do, we're going to do. Because 
The truth is, most people are hurting far more than they want to let on. And they're not going to tell you unless you really know them. And you got to have time to get it on. You got to share the workload and get in people's lives. And if you're so busy, you're just, all you can do is spare that one hour for community group and that one hour on Sunday, and the rest of the time you're not thinking about it, then they're going to fall through the workload. So listen, verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law. He went prideful. And my plea here is that you would listen to me. My plea is that you wouldn't be prideful, but you would be humble and you'd say, okay, I believe that a, a healthy community shares the workload. So I want to be the kind of person, I want to be the kind of son of God, the kind of daughter of God who says, yes, I'm going to share the workload. I'm going to practice shared ministry by, by every member in this church. Maybe I can say it this way. I think this is the best way to say it. So that we take our mindset out of, God just wants me to set up cards and chairs on Sunday and keep the kids' ministry. Jesus doesn't want one extra hour of your week. Jesus wants your whole week. I'm not, I, I'm not saying Jesus want, wants one extra hour. He wants your whole week. He wants when you wake up tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. or 11 a.m., whatever time you get up, that as soon as you get up, you're thinking, on my drive to work, on my drive to school, or I'm just going to sit here, that I'm thinking about the people in my church, in my, in my faith, in my community of faith. I'm thinking about them. I'm praying for them. Maybe I can call and text them. Maybe I can think about how I can reach them. And on my commute home, I'm thinking, how can I, how can I be there for them? When I get home at night, instead of vegging on Netflix, I'm thinking... Who in my community of faith is somebody I can read out, reach out to right now? Jesus wants your whole week. Monday at 3 p.m., Thursday at 1 a.m., every, every hour, that's what Jesus wants. Certainly you have responsibilities, I know that. But while you're doing those responsibilities, you're not compartmentalizing your community of faith to, they get 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and I'm done with them, and one more night a week and then that's it. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying that Jesus doesn't want an extra hour, a couple extra hours this week. Jesus wants my whole life. That's what I mean by shared ministry, is I am buying into every person here. You would never say this. Well, after I attend church, I'm going to go attend family. (laughs) We don't attend family, right? You never attend family. You are family. You are the church. You are the church. It's not something you attend. And so we we say, yes, I want to share the work of the ministry. So as we wrap up, let's be a kind of community of faith that relies on God's power, speaks the good news as often as, as, as we can, and shares the ministry. And we do it all depending on our mediator, who raised his hands willingly going to the cross for us, bore all the sin for us and gives us the power to do it. And we lift our hands like Moses and sing and worship to him now. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we worship. I pray for everyone here. If they don't know you, God, that they would come to know you right now. They would come find me. And those that do know you, that they would stand and resolve in their minds that they want to take on, if they're not already, these three 
indispensable ingredients of a healthy community and that they would totally rely on your power, that they would speak the gospel as often as they can and they would share the workload of ministry here. They would actively find places where they can plug into gospel ministry and and do it. They wouldn't wait passively for it to happen to them. They would be the instigators and starters of as much ministry as they can. I pray for us all, like Moses lifted his hands in absolutely reliance and dependence on you, that we would worship you in that same way with our hearts right now. We love you and we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand and